Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 251 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Daniel Suarez. He's a former systems consultant to Fortune 1000 companies and has designed mission-critical software for the defense, finance, and entertainment industries. In 2006, his self-published novel Demon, about a rogue AI, became a runaway bestseller on Amazon.com. That led to a publishing deal with Dutton, who have also published all of his subsequent novels, including Freedom TM, Kill Decision, and Influx. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, Change Agent. And now, here's our interview with Daniel Suarez. All right, so we're here with Daniel Suarez. Welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. Okay, so I saw that you once had a Dungeons & Dragons campaign that ran continuously for eight years. So tell us about that. <laughs> Actually, I think it was probably more like ten. But I'd say eight years solid, and then uh, you know, people go to college, they get jobs, and life starts to intrude. But yeah, I I may have said this <laughs> previously, but I like to think that that's where I started to learn to tell stories. Uh, was being a moderator for a campaign and sustaining player interest. And one of the great things about D&D, you know, this is tabletop D&D, you know, same people. is it's a, it's a great focus group for your fiction because your friends are not shy about telling <laughs> when, when you're not doing well. And so it's uh, after, after a number of years of that, you really start to, I think, hone your instinct for wh- how people react. Uh, and, and how you can sustain interest in a story over the long term. And I think if you're, if you're a gamer, you probably know the phrase Monty Hall. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you don't want to give them everything because uh, nothing makes interest go away quicker. And of course, a story that's too hard, the same thing. So you have to ride this razor's edge. Unfortunately, it's not quite a razor's edge. There's a little fuzziness to it, but, uh, and adapting, being able to think on your feet, that type of stuff. His all, I think, proven to be excellent experience when it comes to writing. Yeah, I mean, do you have any uh, incidents from your years playing Dungeons & Dragons that stand out as highlights? <laughs> Jeez, where do I begin? Uh, I I will say I, I won't have this devolve into a particular adventure, but I do remember uh, one particular instance where the my players, and, and by the way, my players, I still keep in touch with them, they're childhood friends, now they're long-time friends. Some of them have very serious jobs. They work in defense. And I, I laugh about it, thinking now how they were <laughs> in a fictional world. But they, my players, this is uh, probably five, six years into the campaign. My campaigns, we didn't see 20th level characters. Uh, it was very important to me that there be danger and risk, that that the players did not feel that they would survive, that they had to actually try to survive and they, they died occasionally, and it was a, a big traumatic event when a character died. So I think the highest level anybody ever got was about ninth level, and that's after a long period of struggle. And at one point, they wanted to go on a dragon hunt, which was something that is, of course, very you know, mythological, epic, and they wanted to do that. So they, they hired people to help them find an ancient red dragon. And what I enjoyed most about it, because I, I guess I have a logistics bent, was after this long struggle, very long struggle, many playing sessions where they defeat this dragon is, okay, now what do you do with this treasure? How do you move it out of this cave miles across? <laughs> and, and it became sort of like the man who would be king in a way where, okay, you've got access to this treasure. Now, how do you get it out? How do you stop be- being robbed, attacked, and everything else? And that became a quest unto itself. And I think that was probably the most fun we had was their surprise realizing that the adventure was not over. It was just beginning. So that that's a, a, a prominent memory. <laughs> well, you mentioned, you know, some of them uh, went into the military and so on. Did you see any sort of pattern with their character class? Like the, the fighter became a soldier and the rogue <laughs> became a spy and the cleric became a doctor or anything like that? It's interesting you say that because I I like to think that, that – I don't know whether it's people live up to their characters or their characters live up to them. It, it, it's sort of like when people say that your pet starts to resemble you or you <laughs> choose a pet that resembles you. I did see that because I played an NPC occasionally who was a rather studious type and I, that was just my natural inclination. 
uh, the big bruiser guy was actually the biggest bully in our neighborhood. He, he turned out to be later a sweetheart of a guy. He later became a Mennonite of all things, but he was quite a tough guy. And then in the game, that's what he wanted to play. Uh, so yeah, I would say they did somewhat mirror themselves. Now, he didn't wind up going in the military. Like I said, he's a bruiser guy, later became an, a Mennonite, but at the time, he was very much an athletic, tough guy. And as far as the intelligence uh, person, I, I probably shouldn't even say what, what he's up to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can't you can't mention what his D and D class no. was. That's uh, no. classified. No, no, no yeah. especially his alignment. Yeah, I, his alignment. <laughs> well, so you you mentioned that you had this real interest in logistics. So tell us about the Weathermaster program that you wrote. <laughs> yeah. So what happened was uh, now when I went to college, I. I got an English literature degree from the University of Delaware. And I always wanted to be a novelist, but I graduated in 1987 and I was always interested in, in computers and software. And of course, what happened was the internet really started to explode. And I was very interested in that at an early, um, at an early time. And as the dot-com boom started to explode, I became a computer consultant and I wrote a lot of vertical market software, uh, software for specific companies to do specific things. And I eventually acquired a logistics specialization. And, and of course, I required lots of certifications and things like that in development. And I eventually started my own company. And basically what I did for large companies was I helped to design production planning systems. And this was a very uh, analytical uh, process. It wasn't as creative. Now, it, it was creative at, at times, but I was doing a lot of real hardcore analytical thinking optimizations and I wasn't playing D&D or being creative as much as I wanted to be. And so what I decided to do since I did not have the time to moderate a campaign for D&D and I really couldn't find a good a good campaign to join as a player because I guess I'm picky. I I I kind of like to be in a game where I don't feel the campaign is on rails where you know when you're playing a campaign and you feel that you're an outlet for whatever the, the moderator's doing and you're <laughs> just there to hear it i i hate that feeling and i, I run into that a lot uh maybe it was unlucky but i did still want to keep my hand in in the rpg arena and i started thinking you know why don't i write a version of the weather uh, so, uh I, I created what was essentially weather matrix matrices and rolling tables because i found that weather was something that really affected all sorts of stories and myths. I mean, if you think about it, the wrecking of a ship from a storm, all of these things, I didn't want those in my campaign to be a matter of just me deciding or coming up with some half-assed version of it. And so I created a very methodical process by which I would determine what the weather is. And there were many, many times when that impacted the story. It impacted and changed everything, whether they could see a mountaintop, whether they could embark on a ship, all of these things. It really changed the story. And what I did was I, I put it into software and automated the process. And that was Weathermaster. I called it Weathermaster. And in 1999, I think I put this on the web and I over-designed it as, because that's kind of how I do things. And what I did was I put a polymorphic encryption wrapper around this software. And that meant that you could try it for 30 days and then you had to buy it or it would lock itself. And if you copied it somewhere, it would re-encrypt itself and Anyway, put it out on the web. I set it up so that you could purchase it with Visa, MasterCard, that type of thing. And then I got very busy. Uh, I think it was a Y2K remediation project. And if you remember, you know, the turn of the millennium, everything was supposed to go kablooey. And of course, I knew it wouldn't, but there was a great deal of time pressure to stay focused on those those projects. And I really kind of forgot about Weathermaster. And what it was doing in the meantime was, well, people were downloading it in 38 countries and trying it. And then buying it. And at some point I checked back and there was all this money in this account. And I had set it up so that it was paying for the monthly fees for the website. It was paying for advertising. And that was actually, that software program was part of the how I uh, conceived of the, of the concept for Demon, uh, my first book, which was this, that, you know, do you really have to be alive to get stuff done in, in the modern world? Because I was thinking that if I got hit by a bus, Weathermaster would continue on without me, earning money, paying for its own existence on the web. And as I started to look into it, I realized there was more and more you could do in the modern world, even if you were dead. And so that's really where the, the kernel for that story came from. 
Right. And so you write your first novel or first published novel, Demon. Talk about that process of trying to get it published. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that that was quite an adventure. Uh, what happened was, again, I wanted more and more to have a creative outlet. I, I did enjoy my work, but there was a, always a part of me that wanted to be a creative and I always wanted to write books. And so what happened was I I wrote Demon over two years. It was 2002 to 2004. And then I realized, because I was doing it as sort of a creative project, but I was very pleased with the way it turned out, and I thought, maybe I should try to get this published. And so I started to read up on how one gets an agent, and, and I laugh, actually, when I think about it, because I wrote 48 customized query letters to very specific agencies, and I got turned down by them all. And looking back on it, see, I don't think this is the case anymore that one would do that. I don't think that is necessarily a productive activity now. I think the way you find an agent now is by finding an audience, because now you can self-publish a book, put it out there on Kindle, you know, Amazon, cultivate your own audience, either on your website or through Kindle, and then they'll approach you. But back in 2006, when I was doing this, I believe that was the year that Kindle came out. Maybe it was the year after. So it really wasn't an option. And so having received all of these rejections, or not even rejections, I think I received four rejections, and the other agents just ignored my, my inquiries, I decided to do the logistics thing, which was, well, I know how to create and move things around. I should be able to self-publish this book and figure out how to do it at a profit, because that's, after all, what I do for all my clients. And so very early on, I settled upon, I think it was a Lightning Source, which is an Ingram subsidiary. And I chose them because they were co-located across the street from an Amazon facility in, in Tennessee, I believe. And I realized that I'd be able to then do print on demand and deliver the book within 48 hours anywhere without having to do the fulfillment myself. Now, again, all of this has changed. This is, I'm, I'm a dinosaur essentially now because now it's all electronics, it's all digital. But back then I had to actually produce a physical book, which I did. And I sold it for $14.95. I think I cleared $3.23 or something, a copy after all was said and done. And then I set about trying to find people who might be interested in that. And as anybody knows, trying to get people interested in your writing can be very tricky indeed. And what I did was I, I focused on the tech bloggers or tech people whose work I really liked. And I wrote to them demonstrating how much I was a fan of or admirer of their work and said, hey, I have this thing. You can read it or not. You can use it as a doorstop if you want, but can I send it along? And a great many of them did say, yeah, sure, I'll check it out. And that's really how it found its audience, was one or two of those people conveyed Demon onto still more people. And eventually the book sales really started to take off. It got into Google early. It got into Microsoft and other places. And I was selling thousands of books a week at one point. And that's when all these agents, I think it was right after the May 2008, I think, or 2007 article in Wired Magazine on the book that every agent in, in the world started calling me. <laughs> well, Ray, this morning I watched your um, talk at Google with Rick Clow, and he was talking about how he, <laughs> uh, how you had reached out to him to, to see if you might... exactly it. Yeah. Rick was the, one of the early people who really, really... There were two key people, actually. And, and boy, I'm going to feel bad if I miss anybody, <laughs> because there actually were quite a few. But I'd say the first ones were Rick Clow and Stuart Brand. Stuart Brand over at the Long Now uh, Foundation. And, of course, he was uh, the original publisher of the Whole Earth Catalog. But those two people were pivotal in me breaking through and finding an audience. And I would say to people who uh, want to get into publishing is that you don't have to find your entire audience yourself. What you have to do is find the one or two people who can help you find your audience, who can connect you to that audience. Because there are people out there who may really respond to your work and then convey it on to others with great passion. And that's what you're looking for. Yeah, I was so I was looking at Rick's blog, and I don't know if you remember this, but in order to get that piece in Wired, it sounds like you had to send a copy of the book to the um, journalist that day. And so you emailed Rick and said, hey, do you have a copy of the book? Because I need to get it to... <laughs> that's right. That's right. I did. He had a deadline. And I think the, the journalist was Josh McHugh. Yeah, if I'm getting his name slightly wrong, I apologize. Because he, he later also turned out to be a great guy. 
uh, it was a big fan of the book and also, and just a decent person as well. But yeah, I think he had a deadline and he absolutely needed it. And Rick was working in downtown San Francisco, I think at the time he hadn't quite moved over from, or maybe Feedburner, which was uh, the startup that he worked as a partner with had not yet been purchased by Google, I think. Uh, that's another, that's another, uh, uh, fortunate coincidence was that Rick's company got, got purchased by Google shortly after he liked my book and he brought <laughs> it in like a Trojan horse into the Google perimeter. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, so as you mentioned, then the, the Wired article came out and then that really kickstarted everything. It and, did, yeah. um, and I, we don't have time really to talk about all your books, but I do want to get into this new one, Change Agent. You want to just talk about how this, this new book kind of came about? Sure. I, I think it, it, this new book, Change Agent, came about in, in the way that most of my books do, and that is that I am doing my usual routine research and trying to understand what's happening, what's coming in the world, because I always had a really voracious interest, a curiosity about both technology and its effect on society. So this is something I do naturally. And in the course of finishing my last book and, and working on a, on a short story, I did some research involving CRISPR. And the minute I heard about CRISPR, I thought, well, this is interesting because the ability to edit DNA. Now, of course, CRISPR does this typically within a, an embryo, although there have been tests with doing edits to uh, monkey's eyes where they use a virus to affect edits in the eyes and give monkeys color vision, the ability to see red. And I started to think about what the possibilities were because it's, you know, this technology is only since 2012. We're only five years into it. And just last month, Chinese researchers were able to edit a viable human embryo. That is, take uh, a genetic disorder that this embryo had and correct it so that if this embryo was then brought to term, the resulting child would not have this genetic disorder. This has profound implications for cystic fibrosis, Huntington's disease, hemophilia, so many other disorders. And then the logical question next is, well, couldn't we change more? And and I wanted to set this book, Change Agent, a little in the future. It's actually the first of my books that does take place in the future. All of my other books, a sci-fi author as I am, all of the my previous books really take place in the present day. But this book takes place in 2045 at a time when CRISPR is further developed, where parents are going to these black market embryo labs to try to imbue their future offspring with greater height, uh, different muscle tone, more intelligence, more memory, and on and on. Basically, genetic advantages that they cannot convey to them naturally. And the key thing about CRISPR is these are germline edits, meaning that whatever edits are made will be passed down to the, their offspring's own offspring. And so it can permanently change the trajectory or, or fortunes of a family, potentially. And I really wanted to unpack that and examine in this story, how would that change the world? But moreover, how would it change it if suddenly we had the technology and the ability to change adult organisms, which is the case here. In Change Agent, the, the protagonist, Kenneth Duran, is an Interpol agent, and he works on a genetic crime task force based out of Singapore. And he is trying to locate these illegal baby labs that are making very risky edits that could really mess with the evolution of hum humanity. And this is a very profitable criminal enterprise. And so these genetic cartels target him because he's so effective. And they inject him with a change agent that actually changes his genomic sequence into the person he's hunting. So this idea is also a myth. It's a, it's a, a recurring myth. It's an archetypical motif this idea of an identity switch. And I wanted to bring it into the modern era using very real technology. And that's, that's what I think was the key difference here is we may be looking in the next 30 to 40 to 50 years at a post identity society. And what would that look like if you could change over the course of your life, the DNA you were born with? I thought that was really intriguing. Yeah. Well, so you, so you mentioned the novel starts in Singapore and is, is that, Entirely in Southeast Asia. Do you want to talk about why you chose that as the setting for the novel? Sure. And that was actually something that I agonized over a bit. Uh, I don't know if you read the first two chapters, but this, these oh, are I, I read the whole, I read chapters. The whole book. Yeah. Oh, excellent. The in the first two chapters, uh, I think I believe it's the second chapter. I postulate that Silicon Valley is no longer the center of the technology world, and that was 
oh, I'd say an admonition in a way that America really needs to embrace science and reason above all, that if we don't, the rest of the world will. And this was partly the reason I based it in Singapore. Let's just call it a concern about the direction the nation is taking in viewing scientific information as optional. And I'll just use climate change as one example that I don't believe we have the luxury to indulge in in non-scientific or evidence-based thinking when it comes to these big issues that affect the whole world. And I do believe that right now in Asia, they are they are ready to embrace anything that works and is scientific. And of course, of, of course, they have their own cultural picadillos. But I thought Singapore as a pure petri dish of business, especially because Singapore has already years ago, they believe it's in 2007, invested a billion dollars in biotech, specifically at this facility called Biopolis where they were luring scientists, biotech researchers from all around the world to come to Singapore and work. And the the selling point was the beautiful new lab facilities, support for their work, and no interference, basically. And I thought that was a compelling reason to place it there. Right. I mean, you say in the book that this synthetic biology is going to be the transistor of the 21st century, that it's just impossible to overstate how, how much America is going to get left behind if we, yeah. you know, don't embrace this. Yeah, and I think in some ways that upsets people. And I am careful. For instance, I'm writing an article right now about GMOs. And I think what is fundamentally changed with this new technology, both CRISPR, that is the ability to genetically edit organisms, and synthetic biology, the idea that you would take single-celled organisms like E. coli bacteria, algae, yeast, and reprogram them using genetic editing or insertion of genetic sequences to do useful productive work, whether that's, uh, let's say, creating a pharmaceutical, uh, sequestering carbon out of water, or interesting things like creating biofuels, where you take an E. coli that, you know, two different strains that don't normally interact, you edit one to create a sugar that can be consumed by the other so that it then creates a clean burning biofuel. We have the ability, increasingly, as this moves along, in this discipline to reconfigure manufacturing. I, I saw some very interesting uh, experiments with organisms that were custom designed to grow chitin, that is the shell substance that let's say a shrimp or a mollusks have, and the ability to grow that to create products. It's essentially biological 3D printing. Now, if you were able to create fenders or components for a car that are biodegradable, that already have the right color, you don't have to paint them, you don't have to in, in, engage in heat and carbon-intensive manufacturing processes to produce them. All of this would be a tremendous boon for the environment. But that isn't even touch upon cellular agriculture. Now, right now, this, this statistics usually just shocks people, but it's estimated that 90% of agricultural land is right now employed in meat production in one way or another, whether that's directly in, in terms of cattle or pigs and chickens grazing or growing feed for those animals. And as the middle class grows around various parts of the world, more and more forests are being ravaged to support that. Now, cellular agriculture, where instead of, let's say, growing a whole cow, you grow only the muscle tissue of the cow and you do that in vitro. This freaks people out. But I look at it this way, that the great thing about genetics is you can check it. So if you could check the genetics to say, well, all this is genetically identical to the muscle tissue of an Angus beef cow, uh, that intrigues me. Because if you produce your meat that way, you're using 1% of the land and only 10% of the water. And, and if you change rice, for instance, uh, you change rice, instead of using C3 photosynthesis, you change it to use C4 photosynthesis, it'll be able to grow almost twice as much rice on half the water. And that would be a fundamental change. A third of the population of the planet relies on rice to eat. So a lot of people have this, you know, uh, reflexive a uh, reaction to GMOs to say, oh, they're, they're scary. And I would agree, they are. We want to keep an eye on it. I like to think of this revolution, this synthetic biology revolution, as an open source revolution. And I've said before that biology is the original open source. You can always unpack it and take a look at the genetic sequence. And I think 
The great thing about synthetic biology is you don't need a multi-million dollar lab to do it. You can right now get on Amazon and get kits and start creating your own synthetic life forms. In fact, MIT has an iGEM competition where every year students from various universities around the world compete to create synthetic life forms. And if that is not a 21st century activity, I don't know what is. <laughs> I want to ask you, speaking of eating meat, your main character, Kenneth Durand, describes himself as a Deegan. Did you coin yeah. that term? Yeah, I did, for better or worse. <laughs> and it, it comes from deathless meat. So instead of a vegan, you're a Deegan. It, it, it occurred to me simply because I think a lot of vegans will encounter somewhat of a conundrum when it comes to deathless meat. That is meat that is grown in vitro, uh, genetically identical to normal beef or chicken or pork, without an animal suffering. In fact, the idea here is you'd be able to support more diversity in, in agricultural animals because you only keep, need to keep a few alive, you know, in, and you could just sample them very painlessly from skin cultures, and you could have all sorts of different types of beef without straining the environment, but no animals suffer. And so I think vegans, some of whom have publicly said, well, I'd be willing to try it because if they are against eating meat from a moral point of view, let's say, as, as opposed to a diet, uh, a nutritional uh, reasons, they really have no reason then to not eat meat. And that's why I made a, a, a distinction between vegans and vegans. Well, right. And, and some of these um, genetically engineered products in your book are really dramatic things. You talk about at one point, there's a potted plant that grows juice, juice boxes and the juice boxes have, uh, you know, packaging and barcodes and ingredients list and stuff, which is all genetically programmed into the plant. Well, it, here's the thing that if we have the ability, and again, there is a, a, a computing uh, leap made with using photonics in, in this story as well. In other words, using light as opposed to electrons. And so we've had some computing ability so that we have a better ability to model the end results. That, so we can model what genetic edits will do and then redesign genomic sequences for plants. And so think about it. If a lobster can grow with interlocking plates and shells in very specific arrangements, why not grow products. Why not grow them and it, with their packaging and their lettering? Because certainly animals have imprints on them all the time, patterns, camouflage, that are quite exact. They have some subtle variation. But the point I was trying to make there is what would stop us from doing that? Why would we have to manufacture them in a big factory? Why couldn't we just grow them? Right. Yeah. Okay. And so Kenneth Duran's job you mentioned is that he's, in, he's involved in enforcing laws about which in vitro modifications are legal, and that raises the issue of who decides which issue, you know, which um, health issues are worthy, uh, you know, or how, how you balance the whether inter intervention versus the yes. potential downsides. And so you have this character, um, uh, Brian Frey, right, who yes. does not feel that the Interpol is enforcing the right standards. Um, yes. Do you want to do you want to talk about how do you Yes. How do you feel he about is, He suffers from a chondroplasia, which is, uh, I believe I'm pronouncing that right, which is dwarfism. And he suffers from a, a, a few genetic, uh, you know, misprints, if you will, that caused him to have this dwarfism. And that's a particular type of dwarfism where you are phenotypically, you're normally proportioned or, or, or regularly proportioned, except for your arms and legs. And so he has a normal size head and trunk of his body and so forth. But this is a guy who is a geneticist, is a genetic engineer, and he normally works in the process of creating some of the products that I just described, whether it's uh, modifications for pets to make pets more lovable or neotenic, which is cute, that is uh, not mature looking. And of course, the idea here is that we can design things to be specifically appealing to humans. Uh, and that's part of what he does. But when he learns of this change agent in this story, which our protagonist, Kenneth Duran, has been inflicted with, he is very interested in helping him because he's hoping he can use it to perhaps uh, make himself, as he terms it, phenotypically average. That is, to, to reach what would have been his normal height. And I thought that was interesting. That question of 
if you could change yourself, would you? Because I think in many ways, a lot of people become accustomed to who they are, and it becomes part of their identity. And identity really lies very much at the heart of this entire story. Whether or not Duran is doing what he's doing because he's been changed or because of who he originally is, is a big question. And it's a recurring question. So, Well, I mean, in, in that clash, though, between Durand and Frey, do you take a particular side? Or, like, do you, do you feel like it's likely that the laws are going to be too conservative or are going to go too far initially? Yeah, I, I think what's going to happen is the same thing that happens every time. We try to ingest, and when I say we, I mean society, when society tries to ingest a new technology. And I would take, as a perfect example, aviation. Uh, aviation, the appearance of, of biplanes very low in the sky, flying over people's property noisily. And that, that upset people when this started happening. And it also upset the railroads because the railroads were delivering the mail at that point. And one of the early uses for these biplanes was doing airmail. And, and they could fly faster than planes. And what happened was the railroads started to set upon this idea of aerial trespass. And they started to spread this idea. Because prior to airplanes, when you purchased land, you owned the land and the air above it going up into the heavens. But now people were flying over that without your permission. And the railroads, of course, traversed the landscape like a wall going up into the heavens. And they, they made the claim that these airplanes were aerial trespassing over their, their right of way. And that was in an effort to try to get rid of the competition. And what happened was a series of lawsuits. And this is really what I'm getting at, which is whenever a new technology comes in, whether it be airplanes or, or brownie portable cameras, people get upset. They, they're not, up, they're not happy with the change or they feel that their, their market for their products are threatened. And what results is a series of lawsuits that go through the courts and start to establish precedence over time. And in the case of, of aviation, all of those lawsuits over people getting harmed in airplanes, aerial trespass, you name it, all of these different things eventually started to build a body of law which set the foundation for the FAA. And the FAA started building these regulations. And what I like to tell people is regulations aren't always an enemy to commerce because I think you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who'd be willing to get on an airplane that is not rated by the FAA. In other words, it created this this foundation that everybody could use as a reference, and it basically uh, gave companies that started to go into this new industry some protection for what they were doing, and a general agreement after much, much debate and, and lawsuits and everything else and discord. They finally worked it out. It typically takes about 30 years. And so... I think what's going to happen with an, an innovation as huge as the ability to genetically modify ourselves, to literally take control of human, animal, and plant evolution on this planet, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to have opinions about that. And so in my story, I have it that there is a UN treaty that most nations of the world sign on to. And I think that this is likely to happen because... Everything from the efficacy of, of vaccines, for example, if we're rapidly evolving in all sorts of personal directions, I mean, you know, drastic changes from one generation to the next, culture, social cohesiveness, uh, like I said, vaccines, all of these real public issues, cultural issues, and even religious issues uh, come into the fore. And I think that would immediately manifest itself in authorities pulling together to try to put some brakes on this change. The issue, though, is remember, a CRISPR lab or genetic editing lab can be started for just a thousand or so dollars. And if you have the right skills, I think these will be popping up all over the place with various black market labs offering possibly sketchy, risky edits, which, if successful, could dramatically change the fortunes of your offspring. So I think it's a real contentious issue. I think we're going to see it more and more in the news as the years go by, not less. Right. And well, so one of the things that comes up in the book is people doing really, really, um, you know, unacceptable edits, like trying to create soldiers with no empathy or fear, uh, yes. with no capacity to question orders. So obviously there's going to be some, we're going to need some way to stop people from doing things like that. Oh, absolutely. And 
I think the best way, as with all technologies, is to pull it out into the light. In other words, we establish rules knowing, knowing that there will be those who will do it in the dark, who will experiment in, in various bad ways. But by putting forward a public policy, we aspirationally establish what is considered a norm. And I've done this before. Uh, I've discussed this with regard to what's called lethal autonomy in my book, Kill Decision, and also in my TED Talk, where I talked about the idea of having drones or robotic weapons make the decision to kill humans. I don't think that is a good thing. I think it will have unintended consequences. I think it will overly focus power and really undermine representative democracy in ways, even if these machines work perfectly, I think they will undermine democracy. And that's really the point I'm, I was trying to make there. But again, do I believe that narco traffickers and, and despots and organizations like that will use lethally autonomous robotic weapons? Absolutely. I think they will. I think the challenge is to not normalize it, to not make it so that they can market those tools all around the world. And it's just not a problem. In the same way that we've banned everything from biological weapons to laser blinding weapons. A lot of people don't realize there's an international treaty on laser blinding weapons. And it's because of the nations of the world realize they don't want to fight a war where instantly all of these veterans come back blind. And it's a, it's a really insidious, silent weapon. It will create drastic problems for everybody. So there's certain standards that even though it's technologically possible and restrictions will not be perfect, we still aspirationally as a collective species say, no, this is not cool. Gas, for instance. Let's not use gas weapons. Of course, we've just recently seen them in Syria. But look at the outrage. And and I think in this case, with genetic modifications, all sorts of people are going to want to say, no, this is okay and this isn't. Now, I think the big change here is when it comes to genetically modified foods. I, I'll, I'll tell you a brief story. It was, uh, it was up at a dinner in San Francisco, and it, it was uh, an NGO event. And I sat next to a geneticist who I will not name, but really interesting person. And the work they were doing was in modifying rice strains genetically so that they could live under salt water for a week or more. Now, this was the, the idea was so that they could cope with rising seas and greater frequencies of storms. And when they finished this, they gave this away to people. They didn't sell it. And I thought about it, like, who am I to be upset at this person? I mean, we're changing the world already with climate change and many other things. To be able to try to help people feed themselves and survive, that is definitely not a bad impulse. So. When we start to take a look at the low bar for doing genetic modifications using CRISPR, we're going to see a lot of individual cities and groups editing their crops or changing their world to make it still function so that they can feed themselves and stay together and preserve their culture. And I think this is going to be happening in all these individual pockets around the world. Now, I think traditionally the anti-GMO movement is is against the idea of these big multinational corporations tinkering with food. And what happens when it's not just those multinational corporations, it's all sorts of stakeholders, people whose very lives might be on the line, doing it for very different reasons other than profit, doing it to preserve their way of life. That becomes a much, much more complex uh, moral problem. Right. Well, and when you're talking about this genetically modified rice, that makes me think of the thing in the book that I, I had never really heard of before, but gene drive weapons where you create rice that's kind of like a ticking time bomb and people don't know it. Yeah. It's very interesting. I, I, I hesitate to do this because uh, I will waste half a day of your audience if <laughs> I say this, but I'm going to say it anyway because, you know, that's just what I do. Uh, if you're curious about it, anybody listening... Google gene drive weapons, although, geez, maybe you should do it in incognito so you don't get put on a list. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but basically, a gene drive weapon is something that the Pentagon is very concerned about. Gene drives, I'll briefly recap. What, what happens is with sexual reproduction is you'll have roughly half the alleles, half the genes of the, the mother and the father come together to create an offspring that is not quite like either. And what this means is that a certain gene is not guaranteed to be passed down to the next generation. Well, with a gene drive, what you do is 
you modify it so that instead of having one gene, let's say a, a mosquito, if the mosquito is, is susceptible to getting a certain Zika virus, for example, you edit it so that it cannot get the Zika virus. You take a, a mosquito that is resistant to it, and you move that resistance to both the male and female side. So when they reproduce, that trait is guaranteed to be passed down to all offspring. And then you, you go through several generations, and you build up a population in captivity, and you release them into the wild. And the thinking is, by not being susceptible to the virus, they have a survival advantage. But plus, they have two copies of that in both the male-female side, meaning that it is an overwhelming advantage genetically and will spread rapidly through the entire population. Now, this can also be done to crash a population. You could, for instance, spread a gene drive that makes the resulting offspring infertile, that is sterile, so they cannot reproduce. And in the very next generation, you, you basically, you, you start to spread this idea where it dies. Actually, I think what they do is they spread a lethal uh, genetic flaw so that it takes several generations and it weakens them. Because if obviously if you made it sterile, it wouldn't spread. But gene drive weapons can, for instance, you could spread a gene drive through food crops to make them less or nutritious or even poisonous. And so the crop might look identical. But the poisonous version begins to spread. Or you could make it so that it creates some other deadly pathogen or a virus. And by giving it this manual survival advantage to, to drive its way through the population, that's why they call it a gene, gene drive, it's basically pushing its way through the entire population. You are radically transforming the genetic uh, makeup of this species. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really scary. I, I, speaking of this kind of scary stuff, I kind of want to go back to the super soldiers for one sec, because I had one other question about that, which is that I think a lot of people will watch, um, you know, a movie like Captain America or something and, yeah. and get a very exaggerated idea of what a super soldier could be. <laughs> and you make the point in your book that there are just basic um, biological limits to what a super soldier could be, and it wouldn't really be maybe even worth doing. Yeah, well, I, I think the, the point you're talking about is where I I make the observation that even an elephant can be brought down with a gun. So part of the idea here is that having good genetics doesn't allow you to bypass physics. And whether that's caloric restrictions, cooling restrictions, what have you. I mean, I like a good story as much as the next guy, but X-Men and the idea of a mutation giving you the ability to spit flames out of your eyes. <laughs> its it, Listen, like I said, it's really cool to look at. But when it comes to super soldiers, I think the abilities that would make you move through and succeed in life, whether that's the ability to be, well, tall, uh, to be able to have greater lung capacity, greater mental acuity, uh, greater vision, all of these things, would not would be useful not just in war but in, in everyday life, but that still doesn't stop you from dying when you get hit in the head by a bullet. So uh, the whole super soldier thing, I think, is perhaps overblown in the sense that if you had ten normal people without investing all this experiment, uh, you could still probably be even more effective uh, rather than creating a strain of super soldiers who might then turn around and kill you anyway. Yeah. Well, so you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but that if it becomes possible to modify your DNA, not just in vitro, but actually on living organisms, actually, could you just parenthetically, how far away are we from that? Is that total blue sky stuff or is that coming? Well, I think, again, more Google fodder. Uh, if, if your listeners Google XNA, uh, Xeno, uh, genetics, basically, expanding the number of nucleotides or sugars that can be used to create organic molecules. This has already been done. I think they've done six or seven of them now. Maybe it's eight. But what's interesting about doing this, designing this this type of life, is you can create cellular machinery that does not interact with our normal uh, genes. So in many ways, it's invisible. So the idea is Researchers are starting to think we could use this as cellular machinery that could affect changes within us. 
uh, could be used as a virus. Now, of course, this is tremendously dangerous in one way, in that if we create cellular machinery that our our uh, immune systems doesn't don't respond to, that could be very damaging, and it could create horrible pathogens. So, like I said, we have this razor's edge that we need to walk, and we're not going to be able to put you know, this back in Pandora's box now that we're starting to do this. We have reached the point, I think, in our technological development where this is going to happen, and it's how we deal with it is the issue. But when it comes to the possibility, I early, earlier mentioned that researchers, it was in 2015, December 2015, I think it was University of Washington, researchers created, used a virus, it was a, an adenovirus, I believe, that they injected into squirrel monkey eyes to modify the cones in their eyes genetically so that they could see the color red. And of course, they proceeded to do experiments where the monkeys were reacting to the presence of red that they did not see earlier. And so they confirmed this. And this research is continuing. But this was a living organism that was modified genetically. The eye is very particular to this research because in many ways it's a, a self-enclosed uh, ecosystem within the body. Uh, changes can be made more readily to the eye without accidentally transferring to other parts of the body. And I think that's one of the big obstacles right now that they're working through is how do we only change these certain things? But viral... Uh, viral uh, vectors are basically what they're looking at as to the way to spread these throughout the five trillion cells of, of your body. So blue sky, I wouldn't say it's entirely blue sky. I would say it's it's near the horizon. And whether or not it works perfectly, I think we're going to start to see some early incarnations of it within the next couple decades. Right. But so you make the point in the book, which I thought was really interesting, is that so much of our enforcement of social norms is dependent on being able to identify people basically through their DNA, like what they look like and everything and their yes. fingerprints and also, you know, DNA sampling for crimes and things. And if it's possible to reprogram your DNA in real time, does that risk turning, as one character puts it, the whole world into an Internet chat room where people feel like they can just do anything <laughs> with no repercussions? Well, a great deal of society is about consequences, about how your actions follow you, and that is how we build societies. And, of course, societies straight around the world exist. It is deeply uh, evolved into our circuitry. And deeply evolved into our visual circuitry in our mind is the human face. The human face, the amount of processing that goes into identifying people is extraordinary. The, that, that real estate on a human body is somewhat mystical to us. It, it conveys identity. It also conveys the idea of an other behind that face. And it is deeply emotionally powerful to us. Someone changing their face really subverts a lot of that circuitry. It, it shortcuts, it short circuits a, a lot of, uh, like I said, long evolved behaviors. And I think that we need to be mindful of that as we go forward. Because again, if you can change your face, um, how do we really deal with that? How, how, how do we deal with cohesion? I'm not saying that it's not possible. I just thought that the question itself was really intriguing. I mean, you suggest at the end of the book that there might be some sort of um, like a credit monitoring service, but for DNA, is that sort of a solution to that, do you think? <laughs> well, I guess in some ways I, I sort of prototype futures in my books. And as I was writing it, I really did think about well, okay, if this type of thing is possible, if we have the ability to look at DNA, see where it's changed, because let's face it, we can do that now, why couldn't we have the equivalent of a, a credit, where a service watches your credit score to make sure that there's not any identity theft going on? What if every month or so, a genetic sample is taken, and whether it's a saliva swab or what have you, and a service tells you whether or not you've been genetically modified. And I'll give one good example. Who's to say that somebody couldn't give you a virus that genetically changes you, or at least your brain chemistry, so that you're more susceptible to a certain type of ad or a certain type of pitch? Now, this is not unprecedented. There are parasites in the world that do things like this to insects that, that cause ants, for instance, to climb up to the top of a blade of grass. It changes their behavior to make them so that they're more likely to get eaten by the ultimate target of the parasite to get into the gut of some bird or something like that. No, that can happen in the wild. Certainly this type of behavior could occur to us. 
to, to make us susceptible to some pitch to, to purchase or buy some product or some investment. And so it would be interesting to get a report at the end of the month that says, oh, you've been uh, inf- infected with this uh, investor's virus. Uh, we're going to try to remove it. And, and, this, and I just thought that was interesting. Well, okay, so I, I really want to talk about the character Otto. I don't know if this is too much of a spoiler or not. Do you do you think we can talk about Otto? Hey, let me let me think about that. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't even call it a spoiler. Although, let's let's be careful about towards the end. You know, I mean, I, I uh, you know, it's tricky because I'd love to talk about him. Uh, well, you know, as long as uh, we don't go too deep into it. Okay, maybe we'll, should I just give a spoiler warning that if you um, if you're concerned about spoilers, maybe uh, read the book before yeah. you listen to yeah, this. Yeah, why don't we part. do that? Why don't we do that? Because I'd say that that Otto's reveal is, I think, within the context of the story, particularly rich. So don't listen if you want to read the book, which is to say, just read the book and then listen. To yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> okay, so I, I could I could read a whole book about this. I I thought this was such an interesting. I mean, I had came I had come across this idea of chirality and organisms in the context of settling um, extraterrestrial planets that we might end up on a planet with, that had the opposite chirality and not be yes. able to eat anything on the planet, for example, which would be really bad if you're a, um ex- explorer. Yeah. And but, it's been in existence as a concept in science fiction for decades and decades. I mean, ever since chirality was really discovered. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I know. I mean, I've read a lot of science fiction. I don't remember ever seeing the idea of just genetically engineering human, um, what do you call them, enantiomorphs? Yeah, um, and Antiomorphs. And by the way, let me be clear. I, I, when I say it was present in science fiction, it was present in the sense that you just described, which is either life on some other planet or what have you, uh, an organism or a cell. Because there are only single, single-celled organisms, I believe, on Earth. There's one or two, and they're very isolated. They're like down in some deep Mariana Trench type thing. Uh, we don't really have any life on Earth. Certainly not complex life. That is, I keep, I keep forgetting, is it, is it, Devo and Lexa, I forget which one's which, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. It's left and right-handed life, basically the orientation of the molecules. Right, so so for listeners, so this character Otto has been genetically engineered to have all his molecules have the opposite handedness, so to speak, of uh, of everything else on Earth. And do you want to just talk about what some of the implications of that would be for him? Well, the implications of that would be that he would be inert to other organic well, organisms. So, for instance, he would not be susceptible to viruses or illnesses or poisons that would interact with us biologically. Uh, part of the reasoning, of course, I, I won't go into why he exists. I think some of the questions some people might have is that un- that uncanny valley feeling that I have him portray uh, or, or um, cast onto other people. That intrigued me, and that really was me coming up with that, thinking that you know, if it was an unreal sort of life, a life that seems very unnatural to us, this, it, it struck me that there would be something about our instincts that would find it so off-putting. Uh, and again, the uncanny valley effect really comes to mind. That this thing, whatever it is in front of me, does not seem alive. And yet it is. It's alive in a mirror way. But that intrigued me, the idea of someone who would exist and would be uh, the antithesis of mirror form of life. And every form of life would be unlike this person, this being. Right. That intrigued me. Yeah, and you sort of suggest maybe that he would have to, he would only be able to eat foods that had been genetically engineered to have the same chirality as him. Is that right? Well, yeah, that, that is the case because, of course, he would have to digest molecules. Now, you know, one interesting thing in the, in the research that I've done on it, alcohol apparently has no chirality, so he'd be able to drink alcohol. And get drunk, but food he would not be able to ingest and and derive energy from it because his molecules would not be able to interact in the normal way to the breakdown of the molecules in the food. Yeah, I just, that's so interesting. Like as I said, I could read a whole book about that idea. I think that's so interesting. No, oh, um, maybe give me an idea. <laughs> I also want to ask you. I mean, you mentioned uh, near the beginning global warming, and there has not been a lot of good news um, on that subject for a long time. But you sort of. There's this idea that you maybe could um, engineer E. coli bacteria to do carbon sequestration. Does that yes. make you any more optimistic about our prospects for surviving global warming? You know, it does. Uh, but at the same time, we have the, the worries about gray goo. Now, this is not nanotechnology, so we're not talking about 
you know, mechanical uh, machines spreading throughout the seas and creating the the classic great great goo. But at the same time, tinkering with with organisms in rapidly changing environments, we really have to be careful because releasing things into the wild, of course, we've had some bad examples of us bringing uh, external species into places like Australia or invasive plants, uh, kudzu, and I can't remember the name of that fish that's up in the Great Lakes now. And that's not even at the at the biological or genetic level. That's just, just introducing species where they aren't originally, and it c- can create havoc. I think our big challenge right now is we're starting to see a more and more climate havoc. So the clock is ticking in a way that we have to really start to, I think, acquire mastery of DNA. I think we have a fuse burning on that. And I think it will give us the ability to correct some of the damage we've done. And even, of course, de-extinct species that we may have. I mean, already, I don't know if you've read a book called The Sixth Extinction. It's a fascinating book. But we're expecting 40% of the species on Earth to be gone by 2050. I mean, they're already dropping off at a drastic rate. I mean, right now. And that's that's not speculation. They are. And it has to do with lost environments, both humanoids encroaching, the changing acidity of the seas. These are all factual things. And if we can fix these by using the types of, uh, let's say, synthetically designed organisms that you just discussed, can we then use this genetic technology to reintroduce the species now that we've, let's say, uh, rehabilitated the ecosystems in which they used to exist? So I think all of this is of a piece. I think our mastery of DNA, of synthetic biology, all of these things will help us grapple with climate change and lots of other changes that may come down the road. Well, right. And on that subject, another thing that comes up in the book that kind of blew my mind is this idea that, if, if I read it correctly, that people might start genetically engineering themselves to be better adapted to the changed climate or the changing climate. And then you would actually have a constituency in place with a vested interest in not getting things back to the way they were, because a special interest group yeah, protesting yeah. <laughs> on, the, on the courthouse steps saying more methane in the atmosphere, yeah, something like that, yeah, possibly. I, <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, one of the characters says, uh, "I don't imagine we're going to remain a single species for much longer because of these sorts of tensions." Well, yeah, think about think about cosplay as just an example of people's uh, desire to experiment and change. And if we have the ability to go our separate ways, and maybe not even permanently, that creates a very interesting situation. And I'll put quotes around interesting because I'm not sure it's bad. I'm not sure it's good. But like many things, when a technology's time has come, we pretty much have to surf that wave or get swamped by it. Yeah. All right, so we're... we're really running out of time here and i haven't even gotten to there's so much we've talked about all the really cool synthetic biology stuff in this book but there's this whole other layer of just advanced uh, electronics and things which is yes, fascinating yeah. in its own right yeah yeah um but i guess you're gonna have i to, really do oh go ahead i was just gonna say i guess people are gonna have to read the book if they want all this stuff uh oh but, i like that, that yeah good. <laughs> well what were you gonna say though no no uh, i was gonna say that writing this book really was, for me, very personally satisfying because I'm often asked whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic about the future. And I would say, uh, despite all evidence, perhaps that I am actually very optimistic because the truth is the human race has had the ability to exterminate itself for over half a century, I think, at this point, and we haven't. And I think with the growing middle class around the world, we're doing a lot of damage to the ecosystem. And if we really grapple with these facts, if we really take a look at what's going on and take that as the, let's say, uh, uh, Apollo program type challenge, which is we work together to try to solve this. Also, we'll need to cross borders. We'll need to cooperate with people to solve it all all the way around the world. And that happens to be the exact type of cooperation we need to continue to exist as a species. So in many ways, this is the challenge, and I think we're up to it. And certainly, what else do we have going on? We have no choice but to try to solve this. And I, I meet so many young, interesting people doing cool things along these lines that it, I, I suppose I can't help but be optimistic. Guarded, but optimistic. 
All right, great. So then, Danny, do you have any just uh, other final thoughts or other projects you want to mention or just anything people should uh, know about? Uh, let's see. I Well, obviously, I, I don't typically uh, talk about the next project I'm working on because of the, the nature of the web. <laughs> uh, I will say um, I I really did enjoy writing this book, and I hope your listeners enjoy reading it. And I'm also very interested to see what discussions arise from not just the book, but this whole developing industry. I think it'll be really fascinating. So if you haven't checked out things like synthetic biology or CRISPR, I would strongly encourage you to do so. Yeah. And just as you've probably gathered from this conversation, there are just so many interesting ideas in this book. I underlined half of it. It's just so, so, so many things to check out. So definitely everyone go check out this book. It's called Change Agent by Daniel Suarez. And so Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. That was my pleasure, David. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Daniel Suarez for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including app reviews by MH, who writes, One of my few subscriptions. Nice mix of interviews, discussion, and panels. Cool guests. Interesting perspectives on science fiction and fantasy, and sometimes video games. So big thanks again to app reviews by MH for that great review. Special thanks as well to Tom Schuler, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening. 